So my wife was pushed into menopause due to the drug she took following breast cancer surgery a few years ago. She was 48 years old. And my guess is menopause would have been delayed a few years without the drug. But either way, I didn't really know how to help her. You know, in a lot of ways, families go through menopause together. The fighting over the thermostat, the covers during hot flashes, sometimes the arguments that go with mood swings. And Pete, did you know that your wife's age at menopause is really normal in America? It's just one of the many menopause misconceptions that we're tackling today. Hi, I'm Macy Jepson. And I'm Pete Kenworthy, and this is the Science of Health. Now, part of me says I should just sit back and stay quiet for this one, but you're right, Macy. It would be nice if I knew more about what my wife is going through. Joining us today is Jean Marino, certified nurse practitioner at University Hospitals. She specializes in both menopause and women's sexual health. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So every journey is different, right? But some things are always the same as women go through menopause. So first... Can we break down perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause, and when does it usually begin if there is an age for that? Sure. So actually, I would start with premenopausal women. Those are women having regular monthly cycles, ovulating on a regular basis. And then when women enter into perimenopause, that's the transition to menopause, and on average lasts for about four years. And that's when the hormones really start to fluctuate and ovulation isn't necessarily occurring on a regular basis. And then when someone is menopause, we diagnose that retrospectively. So it's not more sophisticated than counting periods. So you're looking for 12 months in a row without a period. And that woman should no longer be having cycles, ovulating, or bleeding. And then that's just where she stays. So menopause, postmenopause can be used similarly. What determines when a woman will begin menopause? So that's a wonderful question, and people ask me that all the time, and it's it's really hard to predict. Lots of people ask me, well, this is when my mother went into menopause. This is what my older sister did, and sometimes it's similar, but often we're just our own unique people. There's really no way at this point to predict when someone's going to go into menopause. They've looked into looking at different lab values to see if we could figure that out, but so far that hasn't, that's not a practice. All right, so not necessarily genetics, but what about when a young woman begins her cycle? If she begins that early, will menopause start earlier for her? No, not necessarily. Not no, no, it's really unpredictable. So let's go into symptoms here. Um, what are the common symptoms then of menopause? Because it's so much more than what we talked about at the beginning, the hot flashes, mood changes. And then how long do those symptoms last? And I realize that's a range, too. Sure. So symptoms can start in perimenopause. So I just want to make that clear and then continue throughout menopause. So we're looking at about four years in perimenopause. And then the most common symptom of menopause are hot flashes, or we call them vasomotor symptoms, or sometimes night sweats. And on average, those last for seven years, but it can run the gamut. Because I always like to remind people that women have estrogen receptors everywhere, so everything is affected by that significant drop-off of estrogen. So tons of changes in the brain. Hot flashes, night sweats, difficulty sleeping, mood changes, brain fog, difficulty concentrating, having trouble remembering a word. You can also start to have drier skin, drier hair, drier fingernails. Joint pain, I think, is something that usually catches people off guard. And then you can start to have more vaginal dryness, troubles with arousal, lubrication, orgasm, a little bit more frequency, urgency with having to empty your bladder. We're Whoa. a hot mess. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, right? And she did that without a list in front of her, too. That's... <laughs> 
<laughs> Holy smokes. So as I mentioned at the beginning, my, my wife was pushed into menopause, so I imagine her journey was different. But any advice for women who are in that same situation or another reason like hysterectomy, what what else might cause this? And does it only happen when you're already when you've already started perimenopause? It does it shorten that period? So not necessarily. Again, and I wish I had more clear-cut answers. I get asked this every day. We just really have to just see what happens for that individual woman. So the symptoms, like I said, can go on for years. They can start quite early. And I think the big take-home message is that there's tons of different treatment options. You mentioned with treatment for breast cancer, if someone goes into menopause because of damage to her ovaries or they've been surgically removed, that's a pretty deep, dark dive into menopause. And those symptoms can be much more severe because instead of this gradual kind of decrease in your ovulation, lowering of those estrogen levels, it's a pretty quick abrupt drop off of hormones. Yeah. And you talked about treatment. We're going to get to treatment here in just a minute. But before we get there, one other question I have about this impact of, uh, um, for my wife, it was tamoxifen. Does birth control impact anything? Like being on birth control for a long time, does that lessen symptoms, increase symptoms? Is it, is it again, just different for every woman? So it doesn't it doesn't change your course for menopause. What it does is that it can take away those perimenopausal symptoms. Mm. So lots of women are on birth control through their 40s into their 50s. If they're really healthy, they can be on it till about 55 is usually when we recommend that you can stop because you have a really good chance of being in menopause and no longer being able to have an unplanned pregnancy. So basically, depending on the birth control, but let's just say she's on the pill. So it's an estrogen and a progesterone combined pill. She's essentially on hormone therapy. So she's not going to have those symptoms. And sometimes I meet women who they've had a tubal ligation or they don't need contraception and they're in their 40s and they're wondering, what is going on? My friends don't have these symptoms. And usually that's because their friends are on birth control, so they're not noticing these symptoms. You mentioned going without a period for a year. And I want to get back to that because I mean, I've heard this, and I know you have, a lot of women go literally a week shy of a year. And and then all of a sudden, surprise, their period shows up again. Why does, what's happening with your body that <laughs> right? makes that happen? And are you truly not in menopause if, if that happens? Yes, you're truly not in menopause. So women make it to that 11th hour, get a period, and then we reset the clock. So we're looking for 12 months in a row without a period. And again, there's no way to predict when that's going to happen. And the hormones are still fluctuating throughout perimenopause until they finally really drop off in menopause. So you could all of a sudden ovulate and have a cycle. And to be clear, you could get pregnant. Right. So for that <laughs> following year... Correct. What so do you need to do or the, not do? <laughs> the chance is really low for women in their late 40s and 50s, but it is not zero until you're in menopause. So that is a very good point to bring up. And you mentioned late 40s and 50s. I wanted to get back to the fact that I honestly thought that menopause started in the, in, in the 50s for women and was surprised to hear that it was younger. Is it getting younger and younger? And is it because of the... the, the our environment, what we eat, why is it getting younger? 
I don't have not seen research saying that it's getting younger. So the average age is 51 here in the United States, but it could be anywhere between 40 and 60. If someone goes into menopause between the ages of 40 and 45, that would be considered an early menopause, and they should very seriously look at some hormone therapy, but which we can talk about. But again, the average age is 51. But if we're saying someone could be in menopause in their early 40s, then you're looking at symptoms potentially starting in your late 30s. Mm. That's sad, though. And that, and a lot of women go through that, right? Right. And I, I the other issue that we all have to consider, too, is that a lot of women are delaying having children because of careers or choice or whatever they decide. And so when a woman goes into menopause on the earlier side, that can be somewhat catastrophic, that's where we're kind of looking at some labs to see, could we predict when someone's going to go into menopause so that she can plan whether or not she wants to have a pregnancy? And we're not quite there yet. Oh, but that's yeah. good. That's a good start. That's what I was going to ask you. I, I realize you've said now twice um, that the way to know when you're in menopause is 12 months without a period. There's no tests or anything to prove that you're in menopause or to check to see if you're there. It sounds like we're working on that. Well, we're working on that test is looking more at ovarian reserve, which they use a lot in when they're working with women for fertility. But there's tons and tons of online different advertisements for get your hormones tested. We can get you a hormone therapy that's directly in line with what your labs show us and whatnot. And the truth of the matter is there is no research to back up any of that. Mm. There's no reason to be checking your hormone levels. If you are of certain age and having certain symptoms, you do not need hormone levels. No hormone's gonna tell you how much longer you have to go, when you're gonna be in menopause. You don't need it to know what kind of therapy you need or the doses. You can kind of think of it like puberty. You have a child of a certain age, certain symptoms. We don't check labs. We just kind of know what's happening. So it's the same as we transition to menopause. What about diet? Is there anything you can change that impacts any stage along the way? So I would say diet's really important because of I mentioned earlier about our risk of heart disease going up once you go into menopause. So that's really important. Weight gain is also a very common symptom. So working on a really healthy plant-based diet is also fantastic for that. As far as making symptoms better, some women do have what's called triggering foods. And it's unique for everyone. The most common ones are caffeine, sweets, sugar, sometimes spicy foods or alcohol. And if that's a trigger for you, that's a relatively easy thing to avoid. But otherwise, as far as eating certain foods, there's a little bit of data on soy. And some women have the right enzymes in their gut to help work like an estrogen in their body. So sometimes the food foods that are high in soy might be helpful too. All right, let's dive into hormone therapy. Boy, there's so many questions. <laughs> uh, um, and, and I was going to ask you how long you have to stay on it, but I feel like we need to ask other questions first. Like, what kinds are there? And what do you need to know about your body that might put you at risk for being on that? Or even not being on hormone therapy, that can put women at risk as well, right? Correct, yeah. So hormone therapy gets a really bad reputation. We started off giving hormones way before the infamous WHI study of 2002. And it was at one point almost thought of as the newest fountain of youth. One 
particular provider even famously said, women, you need to be on hormones to keep your looks and your husband. And huh. then we and then we had that infamous WHI study of 2002, just trying to see, can we give hormone therapy to older women? Would that prevent heart disease? Because we know women's risk of heart disease goes up once she enters menopause. And of course, the answer to that is no. But what happened was this huge negative publicity on that study and really didn't get into the fact that hormone therapy is a really safe option for the majority of women in perimenopause, the first 10 years of menopause. That really has not been publicized as much. So a lot of people are still holding on to that negative publicity from that WHI study and assuming hormone therapy can cause breast cancer, heart disease, stroke, heart attacks, dementia. Mm. And you mentioned when women start their menopause in their 30s that they might actually need to hop onto a a therapy. Why is that? So if a woman goes into menopause before the age of of 40, excuse me, that's considered primary ovarian insufficiency. And that woman is at an increased risk for heart disease and weaker bones, so osteoporosis, for example, if she doesn't go on hormone therapy. And the recommendation is to stay on it till the average age of menopause, right around 51. And then that recommendation for women who go into menopause between the ages of 40 and 45, again, they're on the younger side. So hormone therapy should be pretty strongly considered because, again, just the risk for going a long time because women on average are living into their 80s. So you're looking at a whole second half of a lifetime without hormones. And so for everyone else, how long do they need to stay on? So that's the million-dollar question. We used to tell women you had to be on the shortest dose for the shortest amount of time. You absolutely had to stop at 65. All of that has been updated. So now for women who start hormone therapy within 10 years of menopause or less than 60 years old, the benefits almost always outweigh the risks. And again, on average, women are going to have hot flashes for seven years. So every year, you should be talking to your provider, shared decision-making, looking at that individual woman's health and risk. And then you make a decision every year how long you're going to need it, because no one knows how long you're going to have these symptoms. See a lot of stuff out there about bioidentical hormone therapy, also compound therapy. Could you touch on that a little bit? Sure. So everyone should be aware that the term bioidentical started as a made-up marketing term. <laughs> we have since adopted it into our everyday language, but that's we should all be aware of that. Because again, you went from everyone being on hormones to the WHI and everyone stopped being on hormones. Women still needed help with these symptoms. And so you had these different people and companies starting with what they call bioidentical and saying that it was safer. So when we're talking about bioidentical, usually what we mean is something chemically similar to what the ovary is producing, and that's estradiol and micronized progesterone. And there are studies showing that it probably is safer. And I like estradiol a lot because we have some data showing it helps with moods better than the other type of estrogen. So compounded bioidentical therapy means it's made in a compounding pharmacy. There's never been a head-to-head study that compared the compounded bioidentical with what is commercially available because you can still get your estradiol and your micronized progesterone at your commercially available pharmacies, your Walgreens, your CVS, etc. And they've never compared the two to show that one was safer than another. What about non-hormonal options? What, what's out there? So we have several options that are non-hormonal, and that's either for women who aren't a good candidate for hormone therapy or just choose to not use hormone therapy. 
The first one that we had approved was called Brisdel. It's a really low dose of Paxil, or the other name is Paroxetine. At that really low dose, it does not treat moods, but it works really well for hot flashes and has a nice side effect for helping women sleep. At that really low dose, it also doesn't have the more common side effects of weight gain, decreasing sex drive, making orgasm more difficult that the Paxil or that Paroxetine at the more the regular dose would. And we could use any of those medications that we normally use for mood changes. So those are called the SSRIs, the SNRIs. Those work really well for hot flashes. They also work really well for moods. So we talked about moods also being a common side effect. So anyone with a previous history of anxiety or depression is at risk for a worsening of those moods during perimenopause and menopause. So it might be a fantastic option to go back on, say, your Lexapro because it might help with those mood changes and your hot flashes. The side effects of weight gain, decreasing a sex drive, making orgasm more difficult are things to consider. I would argue if you aren't sleeping well, aren't feeling well, your moods are changing, you're also going to have weight gain, a decrease in sex drive, and maybe trouble reaching orgasm. So there's risk and benefits to everything, including not doing anything. We also have a medication, another medication that's FDA approved called Vioza. This is a medication that works with the neurons in your brain. It actually helps block the receptors for this neuron that goes into that internal thermostat within your brain. And that works really well for hot flashes too. We can also use gabapentin, which can help with sleep and hot flashes, and oxybutynin, which can also help with hot flashes. Speaking of mood swings and mood change, your partner's going to have a little bit of a mood swing, too, if your sexual desire is decreasing. So can we talk a little more about that? I mean, are there options out there for women who, because of menopause, not, we know there are other reasons for low sexual desire, but Mm -hmm. because of menopause, what are those options? Sure. So I'll just start by saying that sometimes the low desire is because someone is not feeling well. So they are hot and not sleeping and having mood changes. And I always tell them, of course, your desire is low. You have other more important things that you are worried about. So often if I can help someone feel better, that desire will follow. Sometimes it's that vaginal dryness. So if I can treat that, the desire may follow when sex is no longer painful and they get something positive out of it. But there's also medications for low desire. Testosterone is one of them. We have the most data on it for low desire in menopausal women. It's not FDA approved, but we do have research to back it up. And so that's a really nice option to use for low desire. Our other medications that are FDA approved, Addy and Vilesi, they are not approved for menopausal women. They were approved for premenopausal women. We do have some studies, though, on menopausal women, but it would be an off-label use. As we said a moment ago, I said, after you listed all these symptoms, we are complicated human (laughs) beings. Mm -hmm. And I know that women sit around and they talk about all of these things and they think they know, but the bottom line is is everybody is different. So as we kind of wrap up, if you were sitting with that group of women talking about it, what would you want them to know? What would you say to them? to kind of put them at ease and let them know, hey, it's going to be okay. (laughs) So I would tell them menopause is completely normal and natural and what's supposed to happen. Your body is not betraying you. It's doing what it's supposed to. 
that doesn't mean you have to suffer or put up with anything. You have so many treatment options available. And there might be a woman sitting at that table. All of her friends are having a very easy transition. And if you are the one not having an easy transition, that doesn't mean anything negative about you. It's just your own journey. So what I always would want women to know is that it's normal, it's natural, you can get help for everything. I also like to remind women that menopause is a privilege. Not everyone gets to this point. So if you're there, that's fantastic. Jean Marino, certified nurse practitioner at University Hospitals. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Remember, you can find and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Search University Hospitals or The Science of Health, depending on where you subscribe. And for more health news, advice from medical experts, and The Science of Health podcast, just go to uhhospitals.org slash blog.